we look at something like Pride and Prejudice, that it is dominantly female characters, it is kind of a journey within and looking at yourself and seeing how your own status quo in your person needs to evolve and change and go through this process to become someone else. Nearly all the best heroes' journeys are journeys within, absolutely right. And it's it's a self-examination, even if it's not conscious. In the fortress, a distortion. I'm at war with my emotions. I'm at war with the enforcement. Trying to fight for what's right and got sidetracked. Where your mind at? Never mind that. Can't be thinking the blink. You swimming, you sinking. You win, you leaving the heaven. I loaded my weapon. I stay with my brethren. I pray for protection. My prayer in my sight. So I'm doing what's right and not asking no questions. I want to be home free. Where's one that was lonely? But I'm ready and waiting. For my day of salvation, and I'm patient. I'm coming home now. I'm coming home. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Through the Wind Door. This is going to be our final look into Tiger's Eye, or so to speak, because as Toby pointed out in the conversation pre-podcast, we've already spent many hours and many episodes of this podcast going into the details of this story and analyzing it, thinking about what the author intended, thinking about what we take away from the book. This is going to be... Toby mentioned it as being like the idea of doing shared therapy, you know, me helping him and him helping me to a certain extent. But more than anything, it's going to be about analyzing our own emotional and instinctive responses to this story and trying to figure out why it hits us the way it does. I'm going to be ending up asking a number of questions of Toby, which he's taken the opportunity to think about some of his answers to, do a little bit of a write-up, and there's going to be some amount of byplay in terms of me giving feedback to his thoughts and potentially asking questions, and then there is going to be some of that same stuff going on for me as well. Unlike some of our previous sessions, we haven't sent our notes to one another a lot of time in advance. I think I just sent my notes to Greg minutes before we started hitting record on this. So in many ways, this is kind of us being as off the cuff as we can be, because I think the best way to get into our personal response to this is to kind of be a bit vulnerable to a certain extent. One of the things that we're going to be including is a little piece that Alex recorded from Maureen Foley after the audio drama fully came out and he was doing some post-work behind the White Scarves content for people to appreciate. It's an understandably beautiful, very personal piece. And because those shows are no longer available... Alex was kind enough to share with me that recording, which obviously 
uh, already has Maureen's blessing to share with others, since this was had already been a part of one of those Behind the White Scarves episodes. But that's just... that More than anything, that hearing that from Maureen was kind of more of the impetus for why it is that we ended up deciding to have our final wrap-up episode be this kind of moment where we are looking at ourselves using Tiger's Eye as a lens. Mm -hmm. And we'll save that piece for the end of part one, since it comes with its own music. We are still going to culminate with the interview with Maureen herself after releasing episode 20 since that will cover more than just Tiger's Eye. But the interview will obviously be more organic, and this recording from Maureen that we share is really more constructed and polished, much like our regular shows are. So there's no reason not to include both. So, Toby, I, um, I put to you a number of questions back when we were setting up for this. So let's just start... We are, we already have all of the pieces in place here. We know what we're talking about. We know all the characters. Let's start ruminating on what the story invokes in us. Uh, mm-hmm. The first of those questions was, what are the story elements or themes that resonate most personally to you? And do any of the moments in the story mirror aspects from your life experience? There are little moments that rear their head unexpectedly and lift their mask to suddenly and unexpectedly show a moment of open vulnerability that mirrors characteristics I see in myself. Uncertainty and anxiety on your own ability to be what you think you ought to be or do what you want to do is a big part of I think this book and also uh, how I've felt for what I've had to confront for the last uh, two years or so. Miguel on the stalled whale it feels trepidation over when to act, when to take that massive step and concluding repeatedly that today is not the right day to enact his plan because the conditions aren't quite right. The narration obviously highlights that there is no perfect time, no no perfect time of day, no right day on the calendar when all of the pieces will fall into place. When Miguel does act as much as it is fortuitous and prudent that he chooses to do so on the day the widow attacks the ship, he has nevertheless shown starkly that he could never have been ready for what he would have to confront. Anxiety has been on my mind many times these last few years, and going through this story again now, all I could think of here was that was that feeling of fearing what the unpredictable world might throw at your feet, and that sinking feeling when you go to meet it, and your fears are confirmed, or worse, are different and more disarming than you could have possibly imagined. It's the sort of thing that takes the wind right out of you. And yet we see that it is not the end for Miguel, that he manages to move beyond the most harrowing moment of his young life 
even if the shock of it remains, he is still him and even has the resolve to, by the end of the book, to be possibly even truer to who he wants to be. He wants to be a soldier, to have a sense of duty and to, not necessarily for the action or the actions that would be associated with the soldier, but more he wants to have that level of commitment and responsibility that he knows his father lacks. Mm. But his father doesn't even necessarily come into it. It's just what he wants for himself. And the bleakest moments don't rob you of who you are. You can survive them and still have your proudest moments ahead of you. Listening to you talk about all of these... Well, talk about yourself in relationship to Miguel. First of all, I I would agree, and I'll get into it as far as I'm concerned, that Miguel was the one that I was identifying most heavily with at first without really understanding why. And it's significant, I think, that we see through the eyes of someone that is essentially still a child, the fears and uncertainties and anxieties, as you say, about trying to figure out what the right thing to do is and to push yourself into action when life just sort of, your your own internal stuff wants to keep you in stasis, makes you afraid of doing anything for fear of having it be the wrong thing. That's Mm -hmm. an experience that grown adults still have. One of the Jungian archetypes that one could associate with Miguel and part of his journey is that of the innocent. I'll put a link in the show notes as to the page I'm drawing my information from, but the innocent is described as desiring the freedom to be themselves, having the strategy to do things right the first time, and fearing the consequences for doing something bad or wrong. That is definitely not all of who Miguel is, as the innocent is also described as being naive, and I think we can agree that Miguel is not that. But first of all, I'm primarily introducing you to these archetypes as only one tool to understand our discussion. And secondly, one of the Jungian precepts is that people contain multiple archetypes in them, and one is specifically ascendant. If you want another tool, Miguel is identified in Myers-Briggs as being ISFP, introverted, sensing, feeling, and perceiving. And I'll add a link to Alex's webpage, where he associates a specific New Century character with every point on that personality chart. That said, all of these are about the characters themselves, and not specifically Toby and I, so let's get back to that. It's more difficult for children because they have less experience to draw upon and there is maybe some expectation at that age that they can work with the guidance and the wisdom that comes from good mentors that can give them advice or at the very least make them feel like they are loved and supported as they try and figure these things out. But Miguel 
for much of his evolution in the story doesn't have that as you say he draws some of that during points in the story from Harau, but the biggest things are the things that he has to figure out himself mm-hmm. and when you get right down to it that's kind of the truth as far as all of us are concerned it's true for miguel it's true for you you know in your 20s figuring out your internal stuff being a graduate student and everything like that and it's been true most of my life even with a supportive father and a supportive mother and finding friends that I felt like I could count on. I personally have always lived with being afraid of what the right thing to do is and trying to get myself to do it in order to, you know, successfully continue living my life. So, yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, uh, as someone that has several years on you, uh, it doesn't it doesn't always get easier, or at least some parts of it, the things that you are weakest to will continue to be problems. And you just have to find that place in yourself that allows you to remember that you have made these big decisions before and you, and you can do it again Mm -hmm. and that you can't let fear of what might happen get in your way. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the thing that comes to mind is that sort of existential dread is that one episode of BoJack Horseman where it, the episode is called Stupid Piece of Shit and mm. it's the, uh, the whole episode is just hearing BoJack's anxieties and his constant bubbling uh, self-criticism and then it just concludes at the end when he manages to have a moment where he moves past that and actually takes himself out of his own head and tries to do something and you know he maybe makes things a little better and then holly hawk says you know that voice that is always saying that you aren't any good and that you're a piece of crap like that's just a thing that you know teenage girls have right it goes away right and he just says absolutely Mm. And I think that that's one of those, the most terrifying moments, but to spin it back around to the uplifting thing that I feel like with stories like this and to a certain extent moments of Bojack is that I get a lot out of characters who show that they are not impervious to fear to dread to anxiety because their hero's journey isn't them getting rid of that it's learning how to act while still feeling those feelings because the human experience isn't about changing our hardwiring it's about learning the tools of the trade to work with that hardwiring You talked about Miguel, but you've got mm-hmm. some more stuff here on some of oh, the yes. other characters, so so please go on. Yeah, so I'm sort of continuing on this thread of the theme of Tiger's Eye, or the one that jumped out to me on this most recent reading of anxiety and finding a way to move forward, either from that or with that. Harker, 
His journey culminates in him accepting that his life has not gone in the direction that he had once planned for himself. And he now knows how little he, well, knows. That's a concept that can drag you down and make you feel powerless. But what is so so useful about this is that the story frames that as a positive realization for Hacker. That is not a thing that comes at his lowest moment. He may feel like, in that sense of, oh God, I now understand exactly how much of an arse I've been. But mm. for us, the reader who has been able to see his path and the path he could have taken, it is actually a hugely triumphant moment. That's the story saying that it's okay to realize how little you know about something because it's never too late to redefine yourself or even put in the effort to learn the things that you really need to be the ideal version of yourself that you once dreamed you could be. Alex commented recently that there are elements of Tiger's Eye that are going to come back in Panther's Soul in a different way, and he's very intrigued to see what we pick up on. My coughing in the background there wasn't one of those realizations, because I recorded this before having read that book. But there is an unusual synchronicity that, having now re-listened to Toby's thoughts, some of what he's saying is going to be very relevant in Panther Soul, and not just in our further Skype conversation to fall. Yeah, that is... That's definitely going to tie into some of the stuff that I'm going to want to talk about later on um, mm. in terms of understanding more about what Haka represented to me and why it became such a significant insight mm. into realizing that that Haka was as much of the narrative as Haral and Miguel. Yes, yes, exactly. Tiger's Eye always had a divine triune component to it, even if it wasn't obvious at first. Each of them are going on different forms of the hero's journey, but they are still necessary components in each other's journeys, and components in the larger journey framed by this story. The three-in-one and one-in-three is by design, and gives new psychological weight to the audience experience. To my experience. That was what eventually resonated in terms of helping me figure out what was, what was pinging off my brain in terms of my personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got Haka as being the one that grew up thinking mm -hmm. that he had a handle on everything. Yes. And we have Miguel being the youth, knowing that they don't have a handle on everything, but feeling a strong need to figure out what the right thing is because he's not confident in anybody else to show him what the right thing is to do. Mm. How does Hral play into that for you? Well, Hral's internal issues are perhaps not so easily encapsulated by the term anxiety. Her grief and its effect on her day-to-day -day mentality is not what she 
it's not that she overthinks things or is locked into inaction, but her journey is one of finally getting the rest that she needs. When we first meet her and see her in the time after Carol, there is a numbness there that she's on autopilot and that autopilot is dragging her forward rather than driving her into action, if that makes sense. She's performing actions, but it's not because she feels a spark to do something to achieve a a goal of hers. For me, it feels very much that she is doing this because if she doesn't do it, if she stops, then she can't face what like she'll have to think about or have to confront. So she just is doing something in order to not actively think and actively reflect. And it is so easy to fall into numbness. It's too easy. But just as Frau manages to come out from that through her own personal progress, as well as the help of the others around her, whether it's Miguel, the silent one, the captive cats who become the one tribe that she shares with, I feel hope and have an example when the external and the internal worlds we navigate day to day weigh me down. Hrau gives me hope because she's a fighting spirit that I draw upon, same as my dearest heroes in fiction. The world of Rama is dangerous and capable of cruelty, but it's also beautiful and has such potential to it. The theme of our heroes and their journey to me is one of surviving the journey through these dangerous and treacherous terrains and foes and managing in spite of the callous to be better on the other side of it and more ready to fight. When I was editing the most recent episode from our interview with Spencer Lee, the one of the things that he said that I ended up picking out to be the emblematic quote for the episode, the way I always do with any episode of Through the Wind Door, sort of falls into not just some of the elements of Tiger's Eye, but is one of the running themes for new century in general and one of the themes that Alex and Sharon talk a lot about on School of Movies. Uh, What Spencer says is with all loss, almost all grief, all pain it isn't a question of if you can, as in if you can move beyond it, if you can live with it It's whether you really think it's worth doing because Mm -hmm. you will keep going almost whether you like it or not. When we start experiencing Hrao's story, that's essentially where she is. She has found a way to keep going, at the very least going on a day-to-day basis. And that experience, not just the place that we find her, but the entire arc of all of our characters 
dealing with their interpersonal struggles, whether it's Haka versus Harau or Harau trying to understand and want to be a mentor to Miguel. And Miguel, having grown up with one toxic parent and hoping that he sees in Harau this archetype, this guardian, this powerful warrior, and eventually this new parental figure that can offer him something that he has never had in his remembered life. All of that feels almost too much like an ancient take on a pretty modern story, particularly Mm. now in uh, Year of Our Lord 2021. It's difficult enough to get through the day sometimes when you're dealing with all of the personal whatever, the stress of the day-to-day job, money concerns, dealing with your relationships with your parents, with your friends, finding found family over and and preferring it over blood family and in particular how it's gotten even more difficult for some people over the last four years and particularly over the last year pushing yourself to keep going day to day just Mm -hmm. so you can get through the moment and find the strength to continue on but also about seeing the larger problems of the world and how it is you deal with addressing your own day-to-day needs, but also wanting to try and do what you can to be a part of the bigger solution. Mm. The, 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 The metaphorical similarities there kind of knock me out a little bit obviously here I'm, I'm talking a lot about in terms of generalities trying to apply it to as many people as possible and there are personal elements of that in there for me as well but i need to give more context for why it is that I need I wanted to have this episode for my own clarity of thought as well. So mm-hmm. let's take a moment and move on to one of the other questions here. Aside from our three main characters, are there other characters in the story that are similar to people in your life? There's none that necessarily jump out. There, there was uh, one comparison I kind of came to, which was, oddly enough, uh, my brothers to the character of Brask. Not necessarily my brothers as they are now, how our relationship is now, but how it was once upon a time. Because for a lot of years, I think, we weren't living in the same place. And... It just meant that, uh, like, at one point, uh, my oldest brother was, like, halfway across the world just because he was going to a school somewhere ahead of us. We used to live in Venezuela, and then we came back to live in the UK and everything like that. But 
as a sort of unconscious result of that and also just a result of us being developing boys and everything mm-hmm. like that we didn't necessarily have a handle on being able to talk openly about everything that was going on with us and you know that's like it's not that they they were especially bad at it or i was especially bad at it it's just a part and parcel of you know growing up and figuring your own stuff out as you're living or as there are two other people not too many years your senior who are also going through exactly that not that i'm throwing stones at toby's experience or anything but given the existence of toxic masculinity Hearing that a set of brothers had trouble communicating just feels like par for the course. And I'm just glad that they eventually found ways to get beyond that. My communication with my father was the best example of positive masculinity, and even that had issues. Meanwhile, he was the only man that I had a positive relationship with until I was a teenager, as my interactions with my male peers were severely lacking. But back to Toby. And... Yet, even for as much as we couldn't necessarily say, like, oh, I'm having this problem with, like, other kids at my school, or I feel like I don't know myself too well, there was always a feeling of support that I felt from them and kindness. And sometimes that wasn't something that would, on paper, feel like a major thing. It would just be we would sit down and play games together or they would just do like something they would say that I can't necessarily put my finger on. But I think what Brask, and I'm very fortunate for this, reminds me of with my brothers and like moments that I recall with my father when he was alive is that feeling of the male members of your family who may not necessarily be as primed and ready to get into fully exploring the emotional range that you'll be feeling at any one time, but nevertheless will take the time to make sure that you feel supported, even if it's not through an extensive conversation. That's why I feel lucky to be able to have that comparison. It's always frustrating, I think, when... When you need to be able to talk about important things and some of the, in this case, I would say literally, it's the literally the toxic masculinity that prevents men from talking about these things with other men. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never say that my father was directly one of these kinds of people. He I I took a lot of cues from him in terms of being willing to discuss certain things with him. Like my father and I could always have conversations with each other and I would learn things from him and he would always do his best to be open with me, but Mm. he was never always necessarily as good at it as my mom was or certain other significant female figures in my life, I would say Mm -hmm. the communicating is something we've gotten a lot better at as I've become an adult and he's gotten older and become Mm. less rigid 
Not mm. well, it's it's wrong to say that he was ever necessarily rigid himself. Not rigid in the way that he Stiff. was experiencing with his father. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, it's a muscle that you know you're not like it's not that you don't have it there. It's just that requires a little bit of practice and it may feel stiff at times but exactly mm. but on on top of that there is also the implication that you know some of the elements that are shown as being part of haka in terms of his relationship with brask and then his relationship with Hra later on he doesn't feel like he can be honest about how he actually feels because he's supposed to be better than that. And the idea of my father trying to say what he thinks I need to hear rather than what's actually going on in mm. his head. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> it's not something that's ever an actively despicable thing to do. It's not. No. It's just It's so natural because... We're all trying to sort of set an example, like almost for ourselves, as much as we are for like the people who are we feel like we responsible for, whether on different levels. But it is just that element that comes from you will project a silhouette of the figure you want to be, and sometimes the most valuable thing in the world is to maybe just kind of let's take away all of the pageantry and mm -hmm. just be instead of like watching a film of what we think father and son or brothers or two male friends ought to be why don't we just set the stage and do some improv pull down the persona and be yourself be honest mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that men are trained not to do mm -hmm. and i feel like that experience affected me and maybe even my father regardless of what we wanted to do or what we intended to do along the way that that mentality that may have been a part of our lives but was definitely something we read a lot about of in media in particular like mm. it's mm. one of my favorite authors when i was growing up i say growing up i i was starting to read his books when i was in high school there's an author a boston author of, of all people named robert b parker who is responsible for the Spencer for Hire intellectual property. Like, you may be more aware of it because of the TV show or the, um, the made-for-TV movies that came out. And obviously, unfortunately, Mark Wahlberg did a horrible movie on Netflix recently called Spencer Confidential, which is supposed to be a modern take on that particular character and i refuse to watch it because you know as imperfect as the stories of the modern noir detective were uh at the time i don't feel like that new telling of the story was going to 
it, it was just going to be a, a messy, ridiculous affair, particularly with Mark Wahlberg at the helm and everything like that. I saw the tra- I saw the trailer for it and it just drove me nuts. I was like, nope, nope, I'm checking out here. I'm not watching this. Regardless of all of that, those books were still influential to a young me because this was the experience of someone that was putting on a front to the rest of the world in terms of being a capable person and figuring out what was going on inside people's heads as he tried to solve various kinds of mysteries along the way. He had an appreciation for psychology and poetry and film analysis that were inspiring in terms of the kinds of quotes that he would pull out to relate to understanding whatever situation he was dealing with. And he had a girlfriend that was also a psychologist that was able to help him out with figuring out people's motivations, figuring out some of that internal stuff for other people and for himself. The archetype of the the girlfriend that's smarter than him was just something that really spoke to me as a younger person. It helped him to keep in touch with those aspects of himself, Mm -hmm. but there was still a very strong concept of you know the guy that can only be vulnerable around the woman the woman is the one that the man does the emotional work with and boy isn't that a problem in the modern era where we just expect other people to do the emotional work for us rather than figuring it out for ourselves or at the Mm. very least you know spending some money and doing it with a psychiatrist or something Mm. like that but, you know, to, to formative Greg, there were valuable things to draw upon from that. And mm-hmm. it was a step towards helping me to focus my own thoughts and internalize some of the stuff that would later serve me well in terms of being able to understand myself and the world around me and gain a certain amount of insight Mm. Uh, there's a term that i'm forgetting perspective not just perspective but like the ability to look at yourself without rose-colored glasses on to see yourself awareness that's thank you yes Mm. It helped me in my journey of self-awareness, I would say. Mm. That's very important. The original conversation was obviously very clumsy there, but more concisely, Robert P. Parker's books were basically the formative experience of using stories as a deliberate tool to understand myself and the world, a form of self-therapy. I saw Spencer use poetry and literature and movies to do this, and basically internalized that. With Tiger's Eye, it just... I think the self-awareness is something that uh, is a valuable uh, commodity for to be able to draw from, from the stories that mean something to us, whether it's from 
this uh, book that you were saying just now or from this, I think that the lesson of showing examples of characters that are from all walks of life, and I think the original question you posited to me of are there any characters that remind me of other people in my life, mm-hmm. you know, that can be negative comparisons you know i don't yeah. know i don't know people who are like mohawk or something thank mm. christ for that i certainly see them i see them in wider cultural society or in positions of government but i don't know these people the people i know that i'm glad to know because sometimes it really is about the people that you interact with is a garden that you can tend to and prune at your own leisure and disposition at the best of times and sometimes there are the unavoidable confrontations that are feel like you know you've got weeds and this this metaphor is getting away from me but with the characters in this by showing examples that we can draw from in a positive way i think by making comparisons to other people in our life but also to ourselves it helps you practice self-awareness yeah as you were talking about seeing the characters of the story in your own life and i was thinking about that a little bit more i would not say that there are necessarily direct correlations between certain supporting characters and people that I associated as being a part of my life. It's really more in terms of general tendencies or personalities that resonate on a certain level. When we start talking about, I mean, it's honestly a long way off for our thorough analysis of stone spring maidens but when we actually do a quick review of stone spring maidens i'm going to tell you right now there is at least one character that i had a powerfully complicated response to and so that's (laughs) that's going to be an interesting conversation right there for context, um, dear listeners, at this point, Greg has uh, managed to sit down and read Stone Spring Maidens. I have not. So by our next recording session, I will have. And spoiler, Stone Spring Maidens will be the next recording session. Yeah, I. we haven't yet penciled in what that's going to be. And it's very likely that I may end up putting the Stone Spring Maidens episode up just bef- before we even finish before this episode even sees light which is exactly what occurred i expect that once toby reads stone spring maidens he is going to have his powerful I, need to talk about we, it we're I. gonna have a need to talk about it i think that like we need more discourse about it especially because it sounds like you know the next new century book isn't even that far away you know yeah, stone, exactly. spring, stone spring needs its time in the spotlight because by the time you'll be listening to this, then that you, I will have read it and you will have probably heard my thoughts about it. But let me cover the two possible outcomes of it. I loved it, or I really loved it. <laughs> Ten books into the series, I think that if we had 
anything that was actually going to get in the way of not enjoying these books that it would have come up before now and maybe you wouldn't have done a podcast on it. It's clear that Alex's choice for topics and his humor and his intelligence and his willingness to go in deep and talk about these fundamentally important but difficult subjects that it's just sort of sucked us in and we're helpless at this point we just have to he's going to keep making stuff and we're going to keep fucking covering it there's just no other recourse at this point oh yeah i mean yeah arlington's not that great you know i've got a canvas <laughs> on it for my wall for shits and giggles but yeah Oh God! Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Why imagine? would we ever have that? Um, you've <laughs> you've seen the you you must have seen the the new. Actually, now that I think about, it, I'm not even sure that this is the this is the intermediary cover for Panther Soul. Yes, I've seen that, which is the sort of working cover of it. And yeah, exactly. I've I've been sort of peeking my head intermittently into the new century section on the discord because i want to make sure that i don't catch catch a sniff of something in stone spring but mm. it's, it's an exciting time for new century i can't help myself sometimes yeah and and this has been a a, a good brief segue into geeking out over geeking out is the wrong word a brief segue into fanboying over yay there's there's new new century to talk about and we can't wait to talking about it but we've, we've been talking about old new century now we get to talk about new new, new century. century yay yeah, uh, so all right let's go through some of the remaining topics uh, here before you know we... what i'm going what? to flip the table i'm going to catch you off guard and say greg does Tiger's Eye remind you of any other notable pieces of media that have resonated with you in the past? Are the themes similar or different? Uh, yeah, okay, fine. You know, put, put the spotlight on me. <laughs> Ask me the hard-hitting questions. <laughs> the kinds of stories that Tiger's Eye d would directly reflect onto, at least in terms of setting, I saw the disney jungle book uh, a long time ago the animated mm. version rather not any of the recent versions or the not the disney version or the one that the andy circus one locally. yes the andy circus one that i know that alex has talked about at some point and there was a specific sort of frontier book that i read back in the day that had a little bit of an element like this, except in that case, it was a young teenage white boy that was left to take care of a cabin by himself while his parents were away in the wilderness. And he ends up managing to survive and thrive sort of a coming of age story where the assistance and the wisdom comes from making contact with the local First Nations tribe. I'm having a hard time remembering what the name of the book was now or what tribal nation it was. I'm not even sure remember if the book itself knew, but it was one of those books that I read when I was very young. And 
definitely left an imprint on me, even if it may not have aged as well in retrospect, particularly when you're ever you're talking about any story that centers a white person experiencing a culture different from his, particularly Native American. As it turns out, I did find it, although it required half an hour of Google Foo. For those that are curious, the book was called The Sign of the Beaver, and it was written in 1983 by Elizabeth George Spear. I believe it was assigned to me by school, likely because it takes place in 18th century New England. The American Indian tribe included wasn't even an actual existing nation, only called the Beaver Tribe. It was crafted into a made-for-TV movie in 1997 called Keeping the Promise. The story centers around a 13-year-old named Matt, tasked to protect his father's cabin while the father is bringing the family back from Massachusetts. He only survives thanks to the aid of the Beaver Tribe, and develops a friendship with a native boy named Ateon and his grandfather. The culmination of the book is when Matt makes the choice to either continue to stay and wait for his father, or leave with the tribe as they travel north for lands untouched by white men. And while we're on the subject, the original novel of The Neverending Story, as written by Michael Ende, also likely treads some of the same ground in regards to the friendship between Bastion and Atreyu, as well as some of the elements of the hero's journey that that novel may have been influenced by. These stories of relationships between boys of different worlds, usually one civilized and one of nature and fantasy, are the formative works that Tiger's Eye likely triggered in me on a base level, though I have not read or thought about either in decades. In terms of thematically, honestly, I would probably say that unlike other people or unlike your experience, Tiger's Eye was a bit of a new frontier for me because Mm. it felt unlike most of the other media that I would have experienced up till that point. Or at the very least, when I read it for the first time, when I listened to it for the first time, rather, I didn't immediately look at it and say, oh, it's this. Mm. You know, it's it's relating it specifically to front to back being another piece of media that I'd already seen before. As I went through it, and I've mentioned this throughout our reviews and throughout multiple conversations on the Discord, that I looked at certain parts of it and would go like, oh, okay, this one part was influenced by this piece of media, or this one line over here that, you know, was definitely someone was thinking of this particular movie in mind when they wrote this line or had this particular scene or something like that. But no, in terms of overall experience, there really wasn't a one-to-one there. It was a conglomeration of a whole bunch of different influences that for me just sort of melded it into something completely new Mm. and as relates to one of the later questions down the line i enjoyed the story on its own face just sort of like taking it as it came and 
learning about the characters and seeing how the plot terms and the resolutions came and what it led into, it sucked me in and made me excited for more. And I certainly know that I had probably intense thoughts about it at the time. I'm pretty sure that I, you know, was typing furiously at Alex going like about this and that and that was so cool and asking him questions and everything like that but it really was not until we started doing our episodes on it that i understood the actual details about what it was invoking in me Mm -hmm. i i i I, it was all i i was responding to it heavily buzzing off of it from a surface level and now only now that we've had hours and hours of discourse on it do i actually get why the response was that strong Mm. that's almost one of the best places to be in with a story is to feel like you're in this territory that feels new or at least is taking things that you may be able to like find familiar on an individual level but they come together into something completely different i mean even the comparison to jungle book which you mentioned earlier is uh, it's 100 there it's what came to mind when i first started it but i think the conclusion ends up being very different which is what differentiates the two stories for me jungle book is built on the premise that mowgli has to leave because he belongs with the world of man Mm. there's a sharp divide not just from Shere khan who seeks to destroy him because of his heritage but even from the wolves who raised him and the cat escorting him who conclude all right he's grown up the time has come he needs to leave the nest and be with his real home Mm -hmm. and at the end he does choose to leave. Mowgli does choose to leave Bagheera and Baloo, even though he resists it, or resists the idea for a lot of the story, at least in the animated Disney version, the original one. Interestingly enough, in the quote-unquote live-action one, he doesn't return to the world of Mowgli oh. by the end of that one. Uh, spoilers, but uh, no, it's it's well worth going into because it becomes a very different version of that story but Mm -hmm. uh in the original disney one which is where a lot of like familiarity with the story will come from for people he does return and it feels like oh that is the natural conclusion but in tiger's eye as much as the central goal is about taking miguel which as you have spotted a moment ago is a name that has similar building blocks to mowgli miguel Mm. mowgli as much as it is about taking him back to his world of apes, everything about the story is about building communications and bridging gaps between different species and peoples. Mm-hmm. It's not about the divide that feels like, oh, this person can't possibly exist here. Tiger's Eye is saying, now screw that. Like We are absolutely one tribe, and by the end of this, pretty much everyone but Haka, and even by the end of it, Haka is realising no, this guy's completely cool with us. Haka is Miguel's Shere Khan, and Mm -hmm. he concludes, no, I don't need to kill the man-cub. 
because of that, at the end, the conclusion is that Miguel chooses to go back to his home in the same way that Mowgli is saying that he needs to join his humanity. But in that, Crowd doesn't let Miguel go alone. They go together because they built a home together and they mm-hmm. can both return to it as mother and son. So even the thing that it feels like the story is very consciously aware it is drawing inspiration from, it feels markedly different from it. And that's why it feels like its own story. It owes a lot, but it is not the same story in any me- by any means. And it feels just, it stands out. And that's what I think we treasure about it. Here's the thing about all of that. The idea of separateness, the idea of being unable to live together, that feels like an outdated concept. That mm. You can include mm. that in your story, but it, it feels like it's encouraging of a mindset that doesn't go anywhere useful overall. If the, one of the thesis statements of Tiger's Eye and of New Century in general is that we're all in this together and we need to overcome our individual differences in order to survive and create a better whole overall. That's true when we're talking about rebuilding the reunified states of America. It's true when we're talking about the Cats of Rama coming together as one tribe or accepting something as different as Miguel as being worthy of respect and love and that we should be able to work with these people as opposed to seeing them as a threat, even if some of those feelings are justified. And it's going all the way further into some of the later conversations we're going to have about princess thieves. And when we meet a new alien race in Stone Spring Maidens. Tiger's Eye is better than these older stories because it has to be, because we can't keep espousing stories that have thematic elements that are not useful to us or that take us backwards from Mm. the kind of progress that we need to make as a species as multiple cultures on the same planet together sharing the same fate especially when we're dealing with something like say you know climate change and everything like that yeah no and nor should these stories be these golden templates that we never move past from Mm -hmm. like that's stagnation and i know alex has spoken on this numerous times before but that's why you do hope for stories and people to be better than what came before Mm. and by that very logic here's the thing we love tiger's eye it Mm. remains one of the like the a treasure in a vault of treasures of new century but here's the actual truth here we hope there are better stories than this we Mm. want there to be we don't want something to remain on the pedestal just because we have an attachment to it. We always want there to be moving forward because if we don't espouse that, if we don't embody that and don't seek it, 
then we learn nothing from the stories we apparently value. It's a truism that art is supposed to inspire other art. It's supposed to inspire better art. It's supposed <laughs> to inspire feelings and thoughts that are relevant to the time rather than simply invoking comforting, familiar themes. You know, this is why it's so much more important that a movie like The Hate You Give gets lauded over a fucking travesty like Green Book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. None of us feel good about that. No one feels no. good about that except old white people. The Oscars voting board. Not a particularly hot take. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is that the thing that comes to mind with how art inspires other art is what comes to mind for me is I've been playing far too much Persona 5 recently, but in that game, there's this mechanic where you collect these JoJo stands, Pokemon, whatever you mm -hmm. prefer, called person Personae? Pers personas. But you can only hold so many of them, so they basically become your Pokemon that you use throughout the game. Mm -hmm. But you, something you can do and do a lot is you'll fuse them in order to create new ones and mm. it means that you lose the two you had before but you gain something new that the idea being is stronger than what came before mm. and it's not a comparison that's one-to-one -one because we don't lose the things that come before but if art is inspiring other art then this constant rolling roster of the art that is culturally relevant and prominent and is what we need as a wider culture and as individuals does mean that we are constantly fusing things from what came before and it becomes the new thing that gives us strength and then as years go on that becomes the foundation for more things that give us the strength to tackle what comes next yeah that's actually a really good, uh, or rather a, an intriguing parallel there. Never mind that the concept of the persona is a fundamental Jungian archetype, but we'll get into that later. Uh, honestly, the whole experience, like, as much as I enjoy Persona 5, because I never really played any of the others, and uh, some of the elements may not have aged well in retrospect, particularly in terms of how it views gender and everything like that. Uh, I have yeah. a friend. That, yeah, I've ha I have a friend that's played Persona Four, and she has opinions. She also has opinions about another game that Atlas put out called Catherine. And I just like, oh hey, boy, yeah, that doesn't feel like a, a a game that I want to play. Just because someone can do well with certain aspects of a story doesn't mean that any of it is above scrutiny or critique or anything like that. The thing that I wanted to comment on is that Persona plays with a lot of various mythologies as well as incorporating some Jungian aspects to it where it's a little bit complicated because these words actually mean things like the Persona and everything like that, but it's gamified so that it's not just, you know, the face that you wear 
in order to deal with whatever social situation you have. It can do ice damage or it can confuse people. So it's just like... Oh, yeah. sweet. I got the embodiment of uh, maternal frustration. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah, will be great exactly. for that next boss. <laughs> <laughs> so it just feels a little bit weird in that way that it's trying to have its cake and eat it too in, in, in order to use elements of something that actually exists as its own backyard for a creative aesthetic or gameplay or whatever but mm. it, it doesn't necessarily know enough about or have enough respect for the source material to use it properly particularly mm. in terms of incorporating so many different monsters slash demons slash creatures that are actually like significant thematic oh, calm down when it goes um we we do enjoy the games it's fine <laughs> <laughs> like we're not talking about new century video games those don't even exist we still have to uh pester uh, spencer uh, will be spencer about that. that yeah exactly yeah. The point that I was trying to make is that it like, oh yeah, no, this is Lilith. And it feels a little bit like they're appropriating the trappings without actually respecting that it comes from or doing anything other than a surface level read on it just so you can have another cool Pokemon that you can use in your battles or whatever. But that's... <laughs> this is not the Persona podcast. So we'll put that to one side for right now. Back to Dr. Zai. In addition to your associating Brask with being similar to your relationships with your brothers, you said that Dr. Shiro was the character outside of the main three that you most personally identified with. Hmm. I mean, after King Louis, of course, but, you know. Um... Yeah, because everybody identifies with the patriarchal head of a horrible faux British empire. Who wouldn't do that? <laughs> oh, he is very funny. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I mean, at this rate, we should just get on to a Duke Amiel de Hardcore rant. Royston! <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I could pull off that voice myself, or at least I couldn't do it without killing my throat. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, yes. Dr. Shiro is probably the one I most identify with. And apart from just her being this character who you immediately feel is a lion that you can see is in a sea of cruelty, she is a island of compassion... What I what I think is well observed and well realized about her character is that she is not someone who starts at where she ends in this book, and I know that's such a odd observation that feels like a truism, but it would be very easy to you're so desperate for any sign of compassion in amongst the lions that it would mm. be so easy to have her be like, what are you doing? This is the, like, this is appalling. And the thing is that you have to have her be someone who is part of the system and is making observations of this really shouldn't be as bad as it is. 
she has the feeling of wanting to help and acknowledging her position of privilege that she is kind of taking part or she her position of employee is benefiting from this she is someone who is not comfortable with where she occupies but she knows that that is a place she has come from and where she ends up by the end of it she confronts the fact that as much as she has had these reservations she could be doing more and Mm. she develops that need to be of use that we have touched on so often Mm -hmm. and when she confronts the history and ongoing present ugliness of her country that sees others doing something to try and rectify that and enact positive change that and she realizes that that's what she wants to be more like after benefiting from this system i i do get that because I'm a nerdy white kid who has always, like, the human experience is universal and it means that there will always be things that you face that have been hard. But Mm -hmm. privilege is not about saying your life is easy. Privilege is about acknowledging that your life hasn't been made hard because you haven't had to face these things that these are extra things that other people have had to face on top of the challenges of the human condition that they should not have had to be forced to go through this ordeal it's impossible to be in an ocean on top of on top of a life raft and i'm so desperately trying to word this in a way that feels This is the whole point. I'm fumbling and knowing that there is a better way to help to try and bring a bit more positive change into the world. But knowing that I have been in such a position of privilege that you know that you have benefited from it. And there's a guilt that you can't avoid there, but there Mm -hmm. is a drive to at least do something about it, to strive to pursue positive role models in terms of this is something I can do that means that I'm not bringing about more of this shit into the world. Shira is that character I do connect with because she is never a bad cat. She is never a bad person, but that doesn't mean that she couldn't be doing more And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, the experience of anyone who exists in the world and knows that there's a term of there is no ethical consumption under capitalism or something like that, where you feel like the the comic is, I feel like society could be uh, could be improved somewhat. And someone goes, ah, but you live in society. Hmm." I'm a very intelligent person. Yes, exactly. Because after all, we live in a society. But Mm -hmm. uh, That's what they tell us. That is what they tell us. Basically, it's good to be a better person, and Shira is striving to be that, and that's why I like her. Mm -hmm. The immediate response that I had to that is just a little bit reflecting on, you know, once more, the not quite generational difference, but the fact that you have grown up during a time where 
the conversations about privilege and realizing that there's problems in the world, serious problems that you need to work towards acknowledging and doing a better job with, it feels stronger now, or at the very least, the conversations happen more frequently and more openly than they did when I was a teenager or in my 20s back in the 90s and everything like that. There was a general feeling of frustration that could be experienced in music or in other various kinds of media, but online discourse was hardly a thing at that point. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started having conversations about race and feminism and privilege that showed me maybe I didn't already know everything that I needed to in order to discuss the subject honestly. I may have had good role models when I was young, but the knowledge was incomplete or outdated, and I needed to up my game. Fortunately, I met the right kinds of people that challenged my assumptions online and put me on the right path, gaining myself proper self-awareness. That's, that's part of the reason why they call privilege the invisible knapsack. Because you are free from these weights and challenges and roadblocks, you don't even realize that it's there. It's only when you have to deal with something that you suddenly realize that it's a thing. And unfortunately, that's part of the reason why there's so much blowback in terms of, well, this isn't something that I've ever experienced before, so clearly it's not a thing that happens to anybody. Sorry, now now I really was going on a Duke Amiel de Hardcore uh, <laughs> voice tangent there. It's the equivalent of going, eh, huh? Well, I've never seen it. I don't believe in it. Sounds like communism. No. Yeah. <laughs> what, it's available to everyone at no cost? Ugh. <laughs> well, much of the rest of the conversation is going to be trying to finally unpack to you all of the personally relatable stuff about Tiger's Eye that I've been spending the last several weeks trying to figure out in my own head. So for now, let's go to the final talking point, which is where I asked you, how did you feel overall after these weeks and months of deconstructing this book in detail and unpacking all the elements of story used to construct it? Did you feel differently about the story as a result of doing so in comparison to reading it the first time? Take a sip of water. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I felt... I felt as exactly as cathartic an experience as it was the first time because it is just at its core a fundamentally yeah yeah I'll I'll break this glass in case of emergency perfect story <laughs> and I think that when I first experienced Tiger's Eye I was swept up in Prowl's journey Maureen's performance and the characterization of Rao is truly singular in fiction, and I mean that. She is one of my favourite characters. Rao is someone that you look at and think that is an icon. Mm -hmm. 
But going through it again, just from your observations and the emerging conversations we've had together, it really has struck me how much this is a journey of three. Prow is still a powerhouse within that three. That does mean she stands as perhaps the tallest and proudest accomplishment of this book. But the relationship between her, Miguel, and Haka as shared protagonists and how this unfolds as Rao slowly becomes more open to communication over the course of this narrative made me aware of the extra complexities of this text that it had to offer. Tiger's Eye is a journey and one that feels elemental and primal. When you're done and you've reached that magnificent end point where you literally are soaring right alongside Frau and Miguel after this long journey. It seems like an elegantly simple story that is so much more powerful for that simplicity. And it doesn't necessarily lose that on rereading or prying into it further and picking over it with a fine-tooth comb, but it does gain so much on top of that, at its core, elegantly simple structure too much really like it gains too much because even after all this time we've spent on it i know that our series is not a comprehensive look at everything under the skin of this beautiful living wild creature of a text and i wouldn't want it to be i want to discover more when i come back to it again and when others discover it for the first time and take things away from it that I never would have even considered. As for me and this most recent reading, what I took away from Tiger's Eye is that it is a story about feeling alone in the jungle at first, before realising that there are other denizens within who you can build something together with and move forward as one tribe. Like the best stories, it gave me the strength to face my internal and external fears. Even now, Tiger's Eye helps me, and it remains a treasure. It was here where my love for New Century was cemented, and coming back to it has certainly not dampened that effect. If anything, it has redoubled. Mm. When you were talking, other stuff came up for me where I thought about some of the previous conversations that we've had about how... Hrao's communication needs to be universal in order to face the situations that they are dealing with and that the one that she needed to communicate the most with and yet only had that one brief moment at the end was Haka himself. But As you yourself pointed out, it's very possible that they had already talked so much with each other that the only thing that needed to be said was acknowledging for the first time the pain of the other and apologizing for everything that they had been through together and had put each other through as a result of being unable to deal with their own pain in various ways. I think I agree with you overall that it's entirely possible that 
if we, when we come back to Tiger's Eye at any point during later conversations between each other, between later conversations with other people, or even just in the privacy of our own mind, that there can always be something new that we can apply to it because we are growing people. And just as my experience with old pieces of media that I used to love are now better informed by an understanding of myself and the world around me, which can sometimes strengthen a bond between oneself and a piece of art or weaken a bond because these things no longer apply in the same way. It also doesn't, or ideally it doesn't take away from the importance that it had at the time. If anything, all art should be a stepping stone, a lens, a tool that helps us to get to the next part. And some tools will be universal. Some tools will continue to be a source of strength to us throughout. And sometimes these things that served us well won't anymore. That's just a truism of whether or not the foundation of such a tool was always pure or whether it was always flawed. And it's only in hindsight that we realized that this thing was a crutch that caused more problems than it solved at the time. It's why we have issues of things with, say, addiction and everything like that when we rely on alcohol or substances or the serotonin rush that something else in our life gives but ends up taking something away from us in addition to that that can cause additional problems. Well, yes, I do have personal experience with this in case that wasn't obvious. In the case of art, I would say that it doesn't usually get to that point. And yet, I'm also reminded of the way fanboys in particular will associate a piece of media as being part of their identity and therefore any attack on it, any critical thinking done of it, they perceive as a personal attack. And all of a sudden we realize that through no fault of its own, art can become toxic Having said those words aloud, I also have to think of the fact that the toxicity isn't necessarily from the art. It may have elements of it that need to be thought of critically, but the the larger problem, I suspect, is the toxicity that the fanboy brings to it, rather than mm. the imperfections in the art itself. Mm. Fortunately, at least as far as New Century is concerned, we are, I won't say more than happy, but we are certainly willing to delve into the untidy parts of it that we don't entirely feel comfortable with sometimes. And thankfully, the people involved are pretty fully engaged with you know, accepting that sometimes these conversations need to happen. Sometimes 
things aren't going to work out perfectly. People are going to have different triggers and different feelings about something. And you can't control how people respond to your media. But, you know, ideally, the thing that you've created is still going to end up doing more good than it will harm due to the lines of communication getting crossed, Mm. I guess, is the best way to put it. And that brings us to the end of part one, or almost. As promised, we are going to end today with the voice of Maureen Foley herself, relating her experience in voicing Rao and telling her story. And next week, we go from three stories to one. Until then, we'll see you on your next trip through the wind door. My name is Maureen, and just to set the record straight, I am not an immense tiger warrior with purple fur and two spears. I am, in point of fact, short, fat, out of shape, pretty clumsy, Caucasian from America, who, if I attempted to wield two spears, would more likely sever my own limb than harm anybody else in the process. On paper, Roawana and I have very little in common, and yet, she has become more real to me in the past year than I could ever have imagined. But let me take you back a little further. I did some research as to when exactly this all started. Over two years ago, I was a fan of a podcast that had been recommended to me by a couple of friends. and. I lurked on the forums, but typically didn't comment on much. Wasn't super involved, just enjoyed listening to it at work. And then they had an episode about a book called Blue Sun. And the host of said podcast had written it, and it was amazing. It remains amazing to this day. And I got up the courage to voice my praise on the forums, or at least on the website somewhere, and the author and host responded to me, which I thought was cool. But again, not a lot came from that. Fast forwarded to November 2013, I just checked, um, because I still have the emails. I got... Notification from Mr. Shaw that his book had been rewritten and reimagined and redesigned and now is called The Cartographer's Handbook. And I was eager to read it because I enjoyed not only his podcast and his speaking style and his thinking style, but his writing. Um, and in a moment of bravado, I guess, or just flippant disregard for my own somewhat shyness, I proffered up my voice as 
a a tool, should he so need it. Female, American, etc., etc. Did not expect a response. I figured he had more than enough people to call upon that my my meager offering would be appreciated, but not necessary. But he responded with a script or two. And I read and was not great. I had never done recording before. I had to scrounge up a microphone from my friends and figure out how to record on my computer and was very nervous. <clears throat> my first take of Lawton Sadler was not good. I have hunted and cleaned deer myself, and I am no stranger to their components. But the methodical manner this former man adopted, as he gorged upon its flesh, gave him the appearance of one bathing in viscera. My audition for Tabitha Chorley was good enough to pass muster, and I got the part of Miss Chorley, and I enjoy playing her, and I am hopeful that she will come back in some form in one of the next installments. And, you know, throughout Secret Rooms, she came back and I got a couple other smaller parts. Really got a chance to practice um, the whole voice acting thing as it wasn't something I was particularly used to. Uh, my father did radio for a long time. Um, I've done some public speaking and, you know, I was in choir and all that sort of th stuff. And so I'm not a complete stranger to talking in a method that is different than just conversationally. But the whole talking into a microphone at the computer was new. So... Cartographer's Handbook was awesome. Secret Rooms was amazing and gripping and ridiculous because I was in it and still couldn't even handle some of the chapters um, and had to actually turn it off at one point. And it was, I was getting too invested and too scared. So, And then the next book, was set to come out, and Alex mentioned that the role he had in mind for me was actually the main character, or one of the main characters. And not only that, she was a tiger, um, anthropomorphized tiger. So that was a bit of a stretch. Um, Tabitha Chorley, at least, was... American, if slightly Southern, so my voice didn't have to change a whole lot, <laughs> nor did my mind have to change a whole lot to really get into character, but this was a whole new kettle of fish, and I'm not going to pretend that I was a natural at it because I know I wasn't. We are alone, save for the moon. He is weak now, crying softly inside. He breathes his last and is still. I hold Quagga onto my shoulder and walk to home. He is so heavy. Um, I struggled, and I tried different accents and different voices and different methods, and nothing really worked except for my own voice, which 
Alex skillfully pitched downwards, so it sounded like it came from a much bigger creature than little old me. And with a lot of coaching um, and stage direction and more coaching and long lengthy Skype calls that had to be planned around schedules that were seven hours apart, um, we managed to make it work. And Alex was pleased with what I was providing and that was good enough for me. And the weeks went on. The story got deeper and richer and more frightening and more exciting and more heart-wrenching and Frau, who had started as a foreign character outside of myself, became easier and easier to portray. And it wasn't until the very, very end, after it was all over, and I went back and listened to it, which I will confess I hadn't done. I was very self-conscious of my own performance and really struggled listening to it. Um, but, you know, Alex had requested that we all listen for the round table. And so I sat down and said, okay, I'm gonna do it. And about halfway through the first <laughs> or second episode, I forgot that it was me and really got into it. And we had the first round table session and it was great. Either that night or the night after, I dreamed of Frau and Miguel. And it was very interesting because it wasn't like a dream where it's a story and you know it's a story and you know it's fantasy and makeup, make-believe rather. It was very real. And I couldn't tell if I was watching Hrao or if I was Hrao. And it didn't really matter. And when I woke up it was strange and exhilarating to have her come so alive to me that she was in my mind, in my subconscious, lurking around. And I realized that she and I are not so different, really. While physically, and athletically, we are on different sides of the spectrum. Emotionally and mentally, she is so very relatable. And even now I find commonality between the experiences she had and experiences that I've had Obviously, I've never gone through quite the harrowing journey that she has, but I've traveled far, far from home. 
have rescued and cared for a creature very much unlike myself. I have experienced the range of emotions that Arau has. We all have, to varying degrees. I have experienced love and loss, grief and sorrow, fear and rage, and bitter betrayal. I have been hurt physically and emotionally by people that were close to me. And I have been hurt physically and emotionally by men who didn't care. Or, rather, a man who only thought of himself. My Miguel is a little white dog named Sheba. My Haka, I will respectfully not name. My Mohawk, I will also not name, though not out of any respect for him. My Junta has passed away, but my mother lives. So, that being said, I find myself braver, stronger, more confident, partly because of the work that I've done on this project and the work that I will continue to do. And partly because Rao has become a part of me now. She has become real. She has become me. Or I have become her on some level. And I'm heartbroken in a way that we left Rama behind. It was starting to feel like home to me and I did want to defend it. And I do want to defend it. But I look forward to wherever Miguel and I end up the next set of adventures we end up in. Because I am Raul. I am Raul. 
and no one can take that away from me now. So to the people who listened and continue to listen, thank you. To my castmates, whose work is astonishing and beautiful and heartbreaking and hilarious, thank you. And to Alex, who brought me into the project and brought Rao into the world. Thank you. I stand straighter. And I walk taller. Because of you.